started a new series. There's my voice. Uh, last week, we started a new series on the Gospel of Mark called Amazed by Jesus. And the entire goal of this series is to instill in us awe and wonder and and just to show us how incredible who Jesus is and what he does. And we're focusing on just the first half of the gospel, chapters 1 through 8. And last week I went through chapter 1. And I'm sure it felt like we were going a 1,000 miles an hour. And that was the whole point of last week. We saw Jesus fulfill a prophecy, contend with Satan in the wilderness, proclaim the gospel, heal a woman with a fever, heal a demon-possessed man. My goal was to go a mile wide and an inch deep in one chapter, and I hope that you felt overwhelmed because I think that's what Mark wants us to feel. Jesus can't be stopped. He's going on this relentless pace in his mission. Now, today, we're going to go slow way down. We're just going to look at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2 and just the very first part, just the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. I want you to see how incredible this story is. And I want you to keep two questions in mind as we go uh, verse by verse. The first question is, how important is forgiveness? And the second question is, who has the power to forgive? So the first question is about urgency. To what extent should forgiveness be our priority? And the second question is about authority. Who has jurisdiction over forgiveness? Who is in sin and who is able to remove sin? Okay, and I think these two questions are going to get us to the crux of this chapter. So if you have a physical Bible with you or a Bible in the chairs, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you want your own translation, you can get out your Bible and get out your Bible app and, and get whatever your translation is. Get that out. I want you to follow along with me as we go through Mark chapter 2. We read in verse 1, a few days later. So this is right after Jesus touches the man with leprosy and heals him. A few days after that, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, Capernaum is in the northern part of the land of Canaan. It's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum is not where Jesus grew up, okay? Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. But Capernaum is important because it's his headquarters, okay? You can actually go to Capernaum today. You can visit Simon Peter's house. This is kind of his base of operations for his ministry to the region of Galilee. And this home that he's in might have been Peter's home. We're not sure, but it probably wasn't a mansion. The crowds find out that he's in this building, and they very quickly fill up both inside the house and the area outside of the door. Okay, and these crowds have gathered to hear Jesus teach and preach. But we find out that some men are not there just for his words, per se. They have come for the express purpose of a healing. Some men came bringing to him, that is Jesus, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. These men are clearly on a mission. You can imagine each of them having a corner of a kind of stretcher where this friend of theirs is lying down, and they've apparently heard about the healings of Jesus that have already been performed in chapter 1. And it's so interesting to me 
that they do not decide to invite Jesus to their house, they go to him, right? The paralyzed man is not able to move. They don't say, we should get Jesus to come to us. They're saying, we're going to Jesus, and you're coming with us because you're getting healed. Who knows if Jesus would have the time to come to us? We're going to him, and that's when they encounter their first obstacle. The crowds are in between their sick friend and the healer. And I love right here, they don't go home. They don't say, well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be, and I guess we'll have to try another day. Because they don't know when Jesus is going to be back in town. He could leave again, and they decide, we don't care about these crowds. Our friend will see Jesus. Today is the day. Now, they kind of skip over this detail in the Gospel of Mark, but staircases are constructed on the outside of the house, and they would lead to the roof as a kind of patio patio area. So these friends just take the stairs up to the roof, and in one sense, they are closer to Jesus. There's just one last obstacle they need to remove, and that is the thatch and clay between them and Jesus. So we are told... They make an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. I don't know if they brought a shovel with them or if they're just using their hands, but they make this hole and they lower the mat. They lower the stretcher the man was lying on. Okay, you've got to just try to imagine being in the house that day, okay? It's standing room only, you're packed in there like sardines, and you start to feel specks of clay coming from the ceiling on top of your head, and very quickly you realize someone is being care-flighted into the room, okay? And I'm sure this room would just be absolute chaos, the crowds are trying to make room, they're already packed in there tight, and they're trying to make any available space for this man. Now, I have always wondered if the friends ever worried about the roof caving in with them, right? They are relying upon the structural integrity of this architect's design, and I just think that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me, but you got to love them. They just dig now and ask questions later, right? We've got to get our friend to Jesus, and I love his reaction. He could have been disappointed, hey, the rest of the crowd didn't barge in. You should wait your turn. Everybody wants to see me. Why do y'all think y'all are the most important people here? Jesus could have said that he was offended. I mean, how insulting to the homeowner. I hope he has insurance to cover all the damage, right? But Jesus doesn't react either of those ways. I love this. This is so important. Jesus saw whose faith? Their faith. He saw the faith of the four friends. Y'all, I can just picture him looking up and smiling through the brand new skylight in the home, smiling and proud of these four men who believed and trusted in his ability to heal. And I love this. He sees their faith and speaks to the paralyzed man who is now in front of him. Their faith helps their friend's life. And he says to the paralytic, my son, be healed. Is that what he says? No. He says, your sins are forgiven. 
he does not initially do what they want him to do. I mean, it's obvious they believe that Jesus can heal their friend, and they are correct. Jesus can do this, but he does not heal this man's nervous system. He heals his soul. Now, we don't know how the friends reacted to these words. We don't know how the paralytic reacted to these words, but this act teaches us about forgiveness. Our first question was, how important is forgiveness? And we know that it's so important that Jesus prioritizes forgiveness before physical healing, right? In this moment, right, right after Jesus says this, this man's legs are still not working, but he is justified in the sight of God. If the story ended right here, he could still be taken home on a mat, but he would be a completely changed man. He came with unforgiven transgressions before the Lord, and he will leave with all of those removed. Now, I was thinking about this story this week, and I thought, you know, we don't know how long this man has suffered. We don't know why he's paralyzed. I mean, he could have been paralyzed from birth. He could have become sick, and paralysis was a symptom. He could have been beaten up on the side of the road and been paralyzed by a mugging. We don't know the reason why he is paralyzed. But what we do know is that this misfortune in his life does not exempt him for the need for forgiveness. You may have experienced a horrible tragedy in your life, just like this man. It could have been even worse than paralysis, but Jesus could still look at you and see that there are sins in your life that you need him to forgive. Even if life has dealt you a bad hand, even if you've been mistreated by others, even if you have to rely upon four friends to carry you on a stretcher wherever you go, you need forgiveness. There is this very subtle lie that I think creeps into our minds, and I think it's maybe well-intentioned, but the lie is my only and ultimate need is to escape from my suffering. Let me, let me repeat that lie again. My only and ultimate need is to escape from suffering. But let's, uh, let's talk about that for a second. Suppose this man comes down through the roof and Jesus miraculously heals him and never mentions his sins. Which one is better? To be healed and unforgiven or to be sick and forgiven? Christians have said for 2,000 years that forgiveness is more important. In our confession of faith, we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It is so central to our faith that we believe that spiritual healing is more important. The fact that Jesus begins with forgiveness shows its priority. And I think that if you continue to read the story, you realize how scandalous it is that Jesus says this. Because the Bible scholars in the audience at the time actually think to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? <laughs> He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Y'all, their conclusion is wrong, but their concern is very biblical. Only God can forgive sins by his word. And they have a problem with the way that Jesus is talking. He's speaking as if he can do something that only God can do. And if Jesus is just a man, they're absolutely right. That would be blasphemy. But the irony is that because Jesus is divine, 
He actually knows what they're thinking. Without them even saying it out loud, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And after their question, who can forgive sins but God alone, he says, why are you thinking these things? Then he poses a question back to them. And this has caused countless headaches for preachers and theologians. I'm going to do my best to answer it today. Jesus says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, I'm, I'm offering you Mitch's personal answer to this question. Jesus never actually answers it in the passage. This is just my personal opinion, and my answer is based on the word say. He doesn't say which is easier to forgive or to heal. He says which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take your mat, and walk. I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see whether or not forgiveness actually happens. I could come up to you right now and say, hey, your sins are forgiven, and you would not know if that really happened or not because forgiveness is invisible. But if I look at a paralytic who's never walked a day in his life, and I say, get up, take your mat, and walk, and he doesn't, we know I don't have the ability to do that. Jesus says the harder of the two options to prove his authority. He says, I want y'all to know, right, all the doubting teachers of the law in the room, I want y'all to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. In other words, y'all don't think that I have this authority. Y'all don't think that I can say what only God can say. You think that this is blasphemy, but I want all of you doubters to know that I do have this authority. I want you to believe that I really did forgive this man's sins, even though it's invisible. So if I say, get up, and this man gets up, you'll have very good reason to believe that I can, in fact, forgive sins just by my word alone. And that is exactly what happens. Without any hesitation, he gets up, takes his mat, walks out in full view of them all. And let's read that italicized word. This amazed everyone. And they praise God saying, we have never seen anything like this. They see the healing and they know when Jesus talks, things happen. If he can just speak and heal a man's nervous system, surely he can speak and forgive sins. So we actually know who has the power to forgive. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He can do it. This is in his jurisdiction. Now, I want to point out something about sin in the Bible that I just think is so, so, so important. Sometimes we think about sin as just kind of a horizontal dimension that we just think it's about harming other people or doing something wrong to someone else. But in the Bible, sin is horizontal and vertical. There are sins that you can commit against God and against your neighbor. So when Jesus says this, I want you to think about this. Every sin that the paralyzed man ever committed against his neighbors is forgiven. And every sin he committed against God is forgiven. I want you to imagine just for a second you were in the crowd that day when Jesus forgave his sins. I, I just want you to feel this in your bones, how big of a deal this is, okay? Imagine you're in the crowd, 
And let's say you knew the paralyzed man. Let's say you've known him for decades. We'll call him Simeon, okay? You and Simeon have both lived in Capernaum for decades. And suppose just for a second that before Simeon ever lost his, his mobility, that Simeon cheated you in a business deal, okay? Let's say Simeon ruined your life. Jesus is saying that the sins that Simeon committed against you are forgiven, whether you like it or not. I don't know if you've ever had this realization before, but Christ has forgiven people who've sinned against you. Whether you ever said you wanted him to or not, someone in your life has lied to you, a coworker may have cheated you, a friend may have betrayed you, a classmate could have bullied you. And then they could go to Jesus, beg for forgiveness, and he can wipe the slate clean. He has that ability, and he has done it. Whether you forgive the sinner or not, he can forgive sinners who have sinned against you. He even teaches us to pray this way, right? We pray this way every single week. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's a scary prayer to pray. God, I would like you to forgive my sins as long as, insofar as, I forgive people who've sinned against me. Do y'all like this prayer as much now? <laughs> forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. C.S. Lewis, as always, summarizes this situation very well. He says, our Lord doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided that they are not too frightful or provided that there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, then we shall be forgiven none of our own. However, and this is so important, forgiving sins does not mean excusing sins. Many people seem to think that it does. They think that if you ask them to forgive someone who's cheated or bullied them, then you are trying to make out as if there, there were no cheating or bullying at all. But if that were so, there would be nothing to forgive. And this last line, it is so important for us today. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. There are decisions that I have made in my life or you have made in your life that no amount of excuses could ever cover. And that inexcusable part of my life or your life is exactly what God has forgiven through Jesus. And in light of that forgiveness, he tells us to do the same for others. If I had to summarize this passage, I would say that Christ calls forgiven sinners to forgive sinners. Christ calls forgiven sinners to forgive sinners. I would challenge you today, if there is someone that has sinned against you, to forgive them. It doesn't mean what they did is okay. It doesn't mean that what they did isn't a big deal. It doesn't mean that we should pretend nothing happened. Forgiveness says that what someone did was wrong. It was a transgression. They sinned against you, but that sin is no longer the final say. Because you have said the very three, the very difficult three words, I forgive you. And when you say that, 
Christ is working in you and by his spirit, and that declaration has power. If you are a sinner and if you have been forgiven, you are called to forgive other sinners. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help us forgive. God, we see ourself in this paralyzed man. Spiritually speaking, we are helpless. We can't walk up on our own two feet before you. And sometimes friends have to bring us to you and show just how helpless we are. But before you heal our bodies, you begin with forgiveness. We can't even begin to measure the value of those words, your sins are forgiven. And we know that your son, Jesus, has that authority. God, we pray that as forgiven people, we would pray the Lord's Prayer honestly. Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, I pray that we would walk out of this place knowing that we have been forgiven, but there is also a calling upon each and every one of us to seek those people out who have hurt us, who've harmed us, who've sinned against us, and declare, I forgive you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and give us courage to do that very thing. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.